GOP ad maker Rick Wilson was one of the first prominent Republican voices to oppose Donald Trump all the way back in 2015. He's now part of the Lincoln Project, a right-leaning pro-democracy group. It's raised the alarm about the stakes of the 2024 presidential election when Trump will likely be on the ballot once again. I'm Kansas Reflector opinion editor Clay Wirestone, and Wilson joins me on the podcast today to talk about that upcoming election, how the Kansas abortion vote shaped national perceptions, and what we all should be looking for in the months ahead. Thank you so much for being on the Kansas Reflector podcast. I am delighted to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to start with the most obvious question. Um, I just read your essay uh, comparing this election to a rocket sled barreling along out in the desert. I'd encourage all of our listeners to read it. But it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump in 2024, right? Why are so many folks resistant to understanding that? Look, I think there are two things here. The first is that that there's a natural desire to want to have a political horse race. There's a natural desire to want to have a contest even where one doesn't really exist. Um, that That's just a sort of um, feature of the American political media ecosystem. We all know how this is going to turn out. We knew from the beginning there wasn't going to be a big Democratic primary. We knew from the beginning that Donald Trump had a dominant position inside the Republican Party um, at every single level that mattered. And so as much as people would like for there to be another another situation, there's not. As, as much as they would love to have, you know, uh, a, a big, messy Democratic primary or a big, messy Republican primary, you know, the Democratic primary is, is non-existent um, because he's an incumbent president. And the Republican primary, you know, if, if you've got Donald Trump out there with 50, 55 uh, percent of the vote already and everyone else hovering in the single digits or the high single digits, that's the ball game. This is this is. The, it, you know, it's one thing to want something politically, but it's another thing to acknowledge the realities of where we stand in the country. And the reality is, you know, it's going to be a Trump and Biden shootout. I mean, short of some massive externality um, where one of them drops dead or uh, it, that's that's where we're at as of, at this moment. I also wonder if people misunderstand aggressive alpha male guys, which, frankly, both Trump and Biden are in their own ways. Right. I think they're not going to say, I can't do this. They're not going to say, I'm taking myself out of this. They want to run. They want to win. Yeah, they do. And and look, um, if you were an ordinary candidate driven by ordinary impulses, and you were under four indictments with 91 separate charges, state and federal, you would think, maybe I should take a breather. Maybe I should take a break on this. Maybe I should do something else this year. Maybe now is a good time to look at real estate in Portugal. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not there. He doesn't see, he's not driven in that way. He's not motivated that way. And so we are going to end up with a, a you know, an inevitable desire for him to retain office or to reacquire office, rather, because he wants the legal protection, the political protection, the 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 adulation, the financial opportunities it brings him, and and with President Biden, you're going to have a guy who believes, um, I think correctly, he's doing a good job, um, and who is who, who is you know driven to serve uh, in at that at, at that level, and so I uh, you know I don't I don't uh, the motivations are not inexplicable. There are explicable motivations on both for both candidates. Sure. So looking nationally, then, going into 2024, 
What is concerning you right now? Look, what concerns me the most right now is a couple of, of, I think the media right now across the country would really, 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 really love a Republican horse race. They're not getting it. Um, and because they're not getting that horse race, they are beginning to try to, to, to make a race between Biden and Trump about Biden's age and Hunter Biden and, 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 and with, with that narrative, it, once again brings it away from talking about accomplishments policy uh the 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 governing philosophy um and puts it back into that into that you know sort of yelling screaming fox media mold that um that frankly empowers the 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 trump side of the equation i think a lot more than people uh really under really estimate and you've also been vocal in talking about the the potential threat posed by um, this no label third uh, this third party no labels uh, branded effort. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, and I think it's important we say that it's a branded effort because the reality is that no labels is now staffed and manned largely by people who came from the NRSC, this is the Republican Senate Committee, Mitch McConnell's world, uh, the Republican National Committee, um, and, a, and a variety of financial people that are backing it are all major donor Republicans. People like Harlan Crow, who is the Clarence Thomas, who has funded Clarence Thomas's lifestyle and others. Um, and so it's a, it's a staff by Republicans. It's funded by Republicans. It's run by, um, you know, Nancy Jacobson and Mark Penn, who famously were Democrats, but in Mark's case, you know, he spent the last, he spent the Trump administration on Fox News as a contributor praising Donald Trump every day. And, and so, you know, people who have looked at their effort understand using their own math, using their own statistics that they, that they're promoting, um, that this will almost certainly, uh, split the vote in such a way that it reelects Donald Trump. So uh, I'm not, I don't pull a lot of punches as, as I'm sort of famously not a guy who pulls a lot of punches. And, and I can tell you right now that they're, they're, um, the outcome that they will achieve in this is to reelect Donald Trump if they mount a candidate. They've, they're only putting their candidates in swing states where Joe Biden can't lose a single vote. They're not trying to, they're not, they're not getting on the ballot in a bunch of red states where it could harm Trump. Um, they're getting on the ballot in purple states and, and blue states where, where they know that if they put a conservative leaning Democrat on their ticket, like Joe Manchin, who is their number one guy right now, they could end up peeling away between three and seven percent from Joe Biden. And that doesn't mean the no labels candidate wins. There's no path for a no labels candidate to win. But they, what it does mean is that they will elect Donald Trump. And it's tough, you know, because I feel like third party candidates, their eternal problem is they're largely a luxury good. They're not something that ever really has a serious shot. And yet at the same time, there's people in Kansas. My husband is from Alabama. You know, when I talk to folks in states like Alabama in Kansas that are red, there's always a lot of interest in third party candidates because liberals, moderate Republicans, libertarians, whoever, they don't feel like they're being heard. But, of course, these also aren't the states where presidential elections are decided. You know, it's it, that's, it's a really good point. And it's something that, you know, look, I tried to I, I tried to help Evan McMullen in 2016 as an independent. But I, I will tell you, the failure mode of third parties in this country 
is is very simple. Yes, I believe, and I have no objection to third parties in a broad sense. I believe that that more voices are better. I don't believe, however, when you're facing an existential crisis where you've got a single choice between Trump and Biden, and one of those men will win, that you can take any chances in this year. The other big failure mode of third parties is, of course, they always try to start at the top, and they always try to, to, to start at, at, the, at the pinnacle, and that model doesn't work. You know, if you wanted to have the, the no labels party go out there and, and start electing people at, at, for county school boards and for state government offices, that's one thing. That's, a, that's, a, that, that's something where you would build up from state house or county commission or sheriff or any, any other position that, and you slowly build up a farm team of people who are credible at governing. And then they get elected to, you know, the U.S. Senate or to a, the U.S. House of Representatives. Then they run for president. That's a way you would do this where you're building an actual grassroots democratic movement, small d democratic. Um, but what they're doing, and, and they've said this outright at no labels, they're going to pick the candidate in secret. Then they're going to go to their supposed convention and tell the people at the convention who the secretly selected candidate is. That doesn't sound to me very much like an American or any other democracy. That sounds like Iraq in the in the Saddam era. That sounds like you know Eastern European kleptocracies in the in the in the old days. It sounds to me like like uh, something that is going to be selected in private by Nancy Jacobson, Mark Penn, and their major Republican donors. Um, uh, without giving the people who 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 may sincerely believe in no labels um, the opportunity to go out there and actually and actually vote for and select a candidate. The the problem with their party is it's not actually a, a, a moving along democratic small d again lines. They're moving in this way where they're secretly selecting someone. Um, that they've focus grouped and poll tested, um, who frankly will end up doing the most damage to Joe Biden. Let's talk about Joe Biden for a minute. You know, I think the position he's in is really interesting because you have someone who essentially put the country back together again after COVID-19. He passed a bundle of bipartisan legislation, a, a really solid foreign policy president in a lot of ways, but he's facing so much static at the moment. Um, what could turn that around, or is the static kind of a mirage? Look, we, we live in a country now where where no president... Uh, is likely to get above 50% ever again. That's how divided we are as a nation. And, and, and I get it. I, I do. I get it. Um, the, the difficulty he faces is that there is a massive media machine on the other side that every day declares that the world is burning, uh, the economy is terrible, uh, and, and has this sort of fantasy vision that doesn't match up to the realities or the numbers. I mean, look, uh, when Joe Biden was elected in 2020, I believed, even as someone who supported his election in 2020 as a choice between Trump and Biden, I believed that in 2020 he would end up essentially being a placeholder. He would essentially end up being a, uh, a transitional president. He has turned out to have had a tremendous amount of success on the domestic front with things like the CHIPS Act, with the infrastructure bill, inflation reduction. All of those things have come together 
um, to present a, a different economic model for the country that, that, that is having a positive impact already. And I think that no one expected this. On the foreign policy front, what we've seen is someone who has uh, rebuilt NATO after the former president treated it like a, an extortion racket. Uh, a, 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 we've seen him as a president who um, has has strengthened our relationships in the Pacific uh, at a level that was unimaginable. He has rebuilt the U.S., Australian, Japanese, South Korean alliance in a way that is that is profoundly strengthened uh, Western uh, leaning and 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 uh, democracy leaning countries against a resurgent China. Um, and in India, he's built a personal relationship with Modi um, that has started to reset the balance of power in 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 the East. Um, and and in NATO, he's backed Ukraine against an illegal and and brutal Russian invasion. Um, and and by doing so, has strengthened NATO in a profound way. He's expanded, uh, helped expand the NATO alliance. So all these things on the foreign policy front are tremendous successes. And if if a Republican president had accomplished any of those, he would be trumpeted in that space as the most successful foreign policy president um, in in a generation. So we it really is an interesting and. It was an interesting and and sort of uh, a little a little a little ironic to see how well he's done and how badly he's portrayed. That's a whole series of podcasts on its own. So uh, here in Kansas, just last year, we had a statewide referendum on a constitutional amendment that would have allowed for the state legislature to ban abortion. And that amendment, much to everyone's surprise, failed by nearly 20 percentage points. Um, it's been less surprising, I guess, in the months and the years since then, uh, as we've seen other measures like that fail in other states. So how important is this Roe versus Wade environment right now? Do you see abortion rights as being really politically critical in the presidential race and other places down the ballot? Well, let me say this. I think I think that that, that is going to be, um, as we've now seen in uh, Kansas, of course, Wisconsin, uh, uh, Kentucky, Ohio. Um, we are now seeing the impact of Dobbs on 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 electoral outcomes, and I think it will have an effect um, for several reasons. The first is that. Um, one of the dirty little secrets of the Republican Party is between 22 and 25 percent of the Republican base uh, of of women are either pro-choice, like quite pro-choice or moderately so, um, and, and or, or just like leave me alone, uh, in sort of a more libertarian streak. So about a quarter of the female base of the Republican Party is pro-choice. 15 to 18 percent of Republican men fall in the same category, and so you end up with this um, a quite significant overhang of of uh, of of people who look at the the way the Republicans have now overshot since Dobbs. Because look, if you were a smart party governed from the governed you know from for electoral outcomes at that point, you would have said, you know. This is really unpopular with people across the board. It's activating the other side. Maybe we should pull the throttle back. Maybe we shouldn't try to pass six and 15 week bans. 
but they couldn't make themselves stop being stupid. They had to stick with it. They had to keep touching the hot stove. And so you've ended up with a frame that has worked very effectively in the Kansas model and the Ohio model in particular, where when people are talking about this not as a matter of abortion qua abortion, um, it, it has become much more difficult for the Republicans to defend it when it becomes an argument about individual freedom and government overreach. And that is something that the Republicans are very deeply wired into um, believing is that, you know, government overreach is a bad thing. I think we all agree government overreach is a bad thing. Um, and so the, the, the moment they find themselves in is where is the, the, that a part of the party and the Republican side that is very dedicated to this issue um, that still thinks it hasn't won enough on this issue is pushing for more restrictions, more limitations, more whatever. Um, and, and that's not where the American people are right now. It is not where the voters are. It's not where the, it's not where, it's not where even Republican voters are at the moment. So it's, it's, I mean, I can tell you one quick story. I, I know for a fact that when Ron DeSantis was going to sign the 15 week abortion bill in Florida, every single member of his senior political staff went to him and said, please don't do this. This will kill you. This polls like, this, this, this polls like, you know, should we serve radioactive waste for lunch in, in, in preschools? It's a bad idea. But he persisted in it anyway, because there's a perverse set of incentives inside the Republican Party that, that drive toward that. I remember it was really interesting last summer, uh, looking at the amendment, because as media folks, me and other folks, I think our natural inclination was to believe that the ballot measure would be a 50-50 proposition. It was going to be really close. And then we saw these ads that were coming out from the folks fighting the amendment, and they really centered that individual liberty, fears of government, overreach message. And my reaction, our reaction was like, is this being too tricky? Is this kind of a galaxy brain approach to this, and yet I think arguably, looking at how this has unspooled and continued, it's really been the whole ballgame. Right. It, and listen, I, I can tell you from our testing and our and our polling and research, Democrats would, if you if you ask random Democratic consultant, hey, what are the big issues? They would tell you um, um, the economy, climate, guns, you know, cat and dog other things, right? None of those things break out of the lowest possible tier compared to Dobbs. Dobbs is the killer app. Dobbs is the thing that has, um, that has a wildly disproportionate impact on voter behavior as of right now. The other thing that has been underscored is that Americans now understand that our democracy is under threat. And between Dobbs and democracy, I think you, you have, there's a much different political climate in the country than anybody anticipated two years ago, uh, and certainly that anyone anticipated after the 2020 election. The other thing that we're seeing, at least here in Kansas, is that regardless of how these political winds are shifting, we're seeing that Trumpian ethos seep down, right? Uh, I'm sure you've heard about this in terms of school board elections, uh, and other kind of races where folks are running for off local offices. And frankly, they have some positions that you could charitably define as crazy. 
Look, there is a set of perverse incentives in the political climate in this country right now, particularly on the right, to be more transgressive, more uh, more uh, conspiratorial, more crazy. And I'll tell you why. It's called the hamster wheel. So if you're a Republican candidate, you're on what we call the hamster wheel. The hamster gets in the wheel and it starts to run because it thinks it's going to get a treat. Well, you give it a treat and it runs harder. So eventually, though, the hamster gets full and it stops running. So they're always having to feed the hamster different food, more treats, more craziness to make the wheel keep turning. And when they, so a Republican, a generic Republican candidate at any level might come out and say something crazy, like, um, George Soros wants to eat babies. Um, and they know it's not true. But then they'll, they'll put that statement out there on social media or in an email or in a speech or what have you, and people react. They go, are you insane? Why would you say that? And then that person will call Sean Hannity or somebody at Fox and say, oh, my God, the liberals say I'm insane. They're trying to cancel me. And then they'll go on Fox. Then they'll, you know, say that I'm the one under attack. Oh, the, 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 the liberals are trying to cancel me and take me out of the political dialogue. They want to hurt my free speech. All of these things have a process that goes on and on and on. It's a loop that they, they run through. And when the when the when the news dies down and the email stops producing money, they'll go on to the next crazy issue. So right now in Washington, Republicans are like, "It's impeachment. We must impeach Joe Biden. He's the most corrupt president." Blah blah blah. Um, and and they know it's not true. But when they're when when they've exhausted it, when they've beaten the horse to death, they will come back again with something new. They will come back again and say, well, now it's not an impeachment. Now we've got to investigate, you know, Kamala Harris or whatever it is. And they'll all go, they'll go through all these things. Um, uh, you know, they'll loop these things around over and over again. These things don't apply to the minds of normal people, but they work in the minds of a lot of the MAGA voters. Trump broke the party. He made it post ideological, post truth. Um, and and we're now in a situation where a lot of people uh, not only believe things that aren't real, but they have a political incentive to say them as well. And the incentives aren't just political, right? I mean, you bring up Fox News, and there's a whole wheel of a whole array of ways to make money based on monetization of conservative outrage, right? So as we near the close here, I was curious for you, Personally, uh, you were an early voice opposing Trump back in 2015 after having been in the GOP trenches for a long time. What changed? Like, what changed for you back then? What, what did you see at that point that set you off on this new direction? Well, I was the first national Republican consultant in 2015 to say, I can't do this. I, 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 and I've written two books about this, so I, I've, I've, I've thought this through very, very many, very thoroughly, very many times. Um, uh, what I realized was that there was a, an, an element of the party that was driven by a sort of desire for an authoritarian world, um, that was driven by racial and ethnic animus, that was post-ideological, and that most importantly, wasn't conservative. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't um, based on any kind of principle of limited government or fiscal restraint or personal responsibility or anything else that could have even vaguely resembled 
the Republican and conservative movement I grew up in. This wasn't Bill Buckley or Hobbs, or, uh, you know, or, 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 or Russell Kirk or anyone else. This was an assertively authoritarian movement. They wanted to use the power of government to achieve their ideological ends. That's not conservative. They wanted to use the power of government to punish their enemies. That's not conservative. And so the degree to which the party transformed itself into uh, statism, authoritarianism, and a willingness to, to, to turn on its head institutions, traditions, um, that, that I believe had shaped the country for the better, um, was a shocking departure. And, and look, if you want to live in a place where there is a, a, a strongman personality cult, move to the Middle East. Move, 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 move to some third world country because there's no tradition of that in America. And, and that was exactly what he was offering, what Trump was offering in 2016. Um, and so I opposed it from the very beginning and I became, uh, look, I, and I, uh, you know, all, all candor, um, I gave up a very, very, very successful, lucrative political consulting business because I couldn't go with that. I couldn't stick with it. I couldn't, I couldn't morally do it. Um, and, and I gave up. Uh, 30 years of friendships and I, you know, uh, between, uh, lost, lost every person I was friends with from that, from that world. Um, and, you know, had, have lived with death threats and threats against my children, uh, ever since then. And it's been a very long, it's a very long road. I never regret my decision. Um, but it was based on a fundamental, um, departure that he was demanding the party make from, from any form of conservatism and towards uh, authoritarian statism. For me, I know it really changed my perspective on certain folks who were in the party. You know, people who became um, profiles in courage who you would never have expected, and yet folks who totally accepted it, who I would say, oh, my goodness, like, Lindsey Graham, what became of you? I mean, look, no, it's, it's, I was low on the list really- of people... I was low on the list of people you would have expected to do this. I was a guy who was a who was a very stern, um, hard edge. I was a guy you called in on political campaigns when it was time to start blowing stuff up. I, I was I was a guy I was you know the guy you called in for the negative ad making when when you when you needed to to, to really you know make people want to go in the witness protection program. Uh, and so you know for all that. Um, I ended up in a position, you know, where, where I sleep a lot better. I'm a lot happier as a person, um, because I'm not trying to pretend that any of this is normal. Just wrapping up here for the last question, what would you advise our listeners to look for and pay attention to in the months ahead? As we head towards this election, you know, people always say they're the biggest election for the future of democracy, but might this one actually be that? This one actually has the uh, the advantage or disadvantage or reality of being the most important. Um, and I, I will say that I think people need to be looking very carefully at how the media is portraying uh, the race in terms of, of pretending it's a horse race when it's not on the Republican uh, primary. There's going to be a lot of distractions in the next few months. Um, I would also advise people not to engage in magical thinking, not to 
not to believe that somehow you're going to get a uh, an outcome where oh it, you know Donald Trump magically goes to jail. That's not going to happen. People who believe that um, uh, are going to be disappointed, and people who and people who uh, do a lot of do a lot of of magical thinking and and wish casting in that regard are going to find out that he's not going to jail. And to, look, even if he's found guilty, he's not going to be in jail by election day, twenty twenty four. And and so I, I encourage people not to not to chase uh, fantasies about the, the campaign, but to to instead engage in the in the realities, which are tough. There's nothing. There's never going to be an easy day between now and election day. It's all hard work from here on out. Um, and to also try to keep themselves clear that 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 so far the Biden economy is not getting the credit it deserves, um, nor are the are the bills he's passed getting the credit they deserve. Watch for how those things start to really kick in at, in, a, in a favorable way as we go forward. Um, and the more the Republicans either ignore them or um, or or say that it's not true, um, we'll tell you how much they're working. Well, Rick Wilson, thank you so much for appearing on the Kansas Reflector podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. Let me know. I'm happy to come back anytime. Talk to you soon.